we're learning about prevailing prayer, and prevailing prayer is nothing other than prayer that gets answered. And after all, that's the purpose of prayer. I've had people I've, 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 I've had pray in services for me, and they'll come to me and ask, how did I do? And I said, don't ask me. You weren't talking to me. It's not a performance. The, the, per- the, per- the, the proof of the, your prayer is you get answers. And what we've been looking at is the, the Bible tells us that God's expect, God expects that our prayers get answered, and since He's the one that answers them, that's good news. God wants to answer our prayers and our key scriptures over, and we're not going to turn there tonight, but over in James chapter 5, where, where in verse 16, where it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails or accomplishes much. God expects our prayers to accomplish much, not little. And what we've been learning is that prayer God's way is not a hit or miss, op- not a hit or miss uh, proposition. It's not, well, let's throw something up in the air and maybe, maybe something will stick. Because that's the way a lot of us pray. We just sort of throw prayers around and hope that maybe something's going to work here. But this is not a maybe-so thing. In fact, in some cases, people's lives are on the line. And certainly, in many cases, people's eternal lives are on the line. God has not left this to a hope-so, maybe-so. It just might possibly work. But if that's our view of it, then we're not going to have very much confidence going into it. So we are learning that the beginning of all this is to expect that our prayers get answered, which means if they don't, there's something wrong somewhere. And we need to go to the Word of God and find out where it is. And it's never on God's side. I can just tell you right off the trap, right off the pack. It's never God failing. It's never God failing to do what He's promised to do. It's always on our end somewhere. And so God, if you ask Him, He wants to teach us how to pray. Jesus' disciples went to Him and asked Him, He said, Lord, teach us to pray. And He didn't say, look, you ought to already know that. He taught them a prayer. And what I want to recommend to you, and and we have a, a few of them in the bookstore, a very powerful little book on prayer called Christ in the School of Prayer. It's in three different, um, uh, it's, there's, in a, there's, a, there's two different, well, actually, there's three different um, paperback versions in there, but they're all the same book. And it is so powerful. I'm reading through it again for I don't know how many times I've read through it. And just read this. You can take it like as a daily devotion and just let it sink in. Don't read it too quickly. And the whole premise of that book is that Jesus wants to teach us how to pray. And he's a master at prayer and he's a master teacher. So we have what we need to have. So we just need to go to him with that expectation. But the problem is we often expect little or nothing. We learned that the first principle of prayer, and there's principles of prayer, not there's principles of prayer, and the first principle of overriding all the others is you must believe when you pray. You must believe that God's going to do it when you pray. Not pray and then find out whether He did it and then choose to believe it. We've seen several scriptures. We're not going to go back over those tonight because I want to get into something else. But we, we, you've got to expect God answers you when you pray. That's the prerequisite. That's the foundation of prayer. And you've got to believe that you've received the answer when you prayed, not when you see the answer. Because everything in this life is based on believing what you see. But in the kingdom of God, it's the other way around. You believe first, then you see. And we've looked at scriptures that back that up and show us that. Then we've looked at the second principle of prayer, and that's really what we're into right now. And that's you must be specific when you pray. And these principles are kind of tied together because the main reason why we're not specific is we don't really believe he's going to answer it. So we give him what I've called a big wide target to hit. 
Actually, we give, we, it's not giving God a big target. It's giving us a big target so that whatever happens, God answered our prayers. So that's why people add at the end of their prayer, according to your will. Because therefore, whatever happens, God answered the prayer. Right? So if, Lord, this is what I want, but, you know, whatever you want, it's up to you, whatever you want in this situation, Lord, your will be done in this situation, God's looking to us and says, ask. Ask implies you're going to ask for something. And if, if, so if you say, God, you know, whatever you want, that your will be done, that sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? But you know what that does? That puts all the responsibility on God and takes it all off of us. God wants to put it on us because there was a gentleman that came looking for a specific problem in his life. Actually, it was his son was tormented by demons. And while Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, the other nine were at the bottom of the mountain and this man brought his son to the disciples and they were trying to cast this demon out and they couldn't do anything and Jesus comes down off the mountain and there's this big commotion. And the father sees Jesus and realizes, I'm leaving him alone, I want to go talk to him. And Jesus says, what's going on? He says, I brought my son to your disciples and they prayed for him and God didn't answer. They couldn't, get, they, couldn't, they couldn't drive the devil out. And Jesus said, bring him to me. That's always good advice, to bring whatever it is to Jesus. Bring him to me. And the fa- father said to him these crucial words. He says, well, if you can, heal my son. And Jesus said, if I can? He said, all things are possible to him who believes. So here's what happened. The man came to Jesus trying to transfer the responsibility to Jesus and saying, the only reason this isn't happening is because you can't do this. Or if this happens, it's because you can. So in other words, it's on your hands. And what did Jesus do? He turned it around to him. He says, no, no. From my end, all things are possible. Did you get that? The God you're praying to, Jesus says, all things are possible. So don't limit him by what you think he can do. Because he tells us what he can do. All things are possible. Oh, here's the condition to him who believes. So he took it off of his shoulders. I can do anything, but it's up to me, up to you, what you believe. That determines what I can do. And so we've seen that principle. And so when we give this big target by giving a very general, amorphous, you know, just broad request, God bless me, then what we're really doing is we're saying, Anything that happens that's good, God must have done. So thank you, Lord, for answering my prayers. But that doesn't really build faith in you, does it? But boy, you ask God for something specific. I told you stories last week about how I learned to trust God as my source and not the job, and how I went for a specific amount for a raise, not to my boss, but I went to God, who's the one I work for. And when they brought to me the raise, it was half of what I'd asked God for. I didn't get mad at them because I didn't ask them for it. I didn't get mad at God. I just went back to Him and I said, Lord, I thank You. I'm grateful for what You gave me, but it's not what I asked You for. And how that law firm, in the midst of a situation that has never happened before and to my knowledge never happened afterwards, that they changed the raises and ended up giving me exactly what I asked God for. Now that raise is long gone. 
but the testimony and the memory of what God did for me is still fresh today. And I could tell you other stories of other specific raises that God gave me in impossible situations. So you look at your situation, well, we don't have enough. Then you need to, the problem is not on God's end. You need to be specific with Him. Be specific with what you're asking Him for. But what we began to look at last time is what do we do? That's one thing when I know what I need. And by the way, sometimes you don't know what you need. Sometimes you may start out needing to ask God, what is it I need? Because in some cases, it's wisdom. Many cases we think, well, I just need an extra, I just need, you know, I just need a raise with this amount of money. And God may be saying to you, no, you need wisdom about what you need because you've already squandered what I've given you before. You may need wisdom about how to handle what God's putting into your hands. So don't be quick sometimes to think you know. So you can ask him for wisdom. The Bible says to ask for wisdom, and he'll give it to you abundantly. But we were looking at situations last week when, what are you, what, what, what when you're praying for a situation, in, especially in someone else's life, when you don't know what the problem is? You just, you just know a general need. And I used the example of driving that day and seeing an ambulance go by me. And I have no idea what's going on in there, but I had a desire to pray for that situation. But I don't know what's going on there. And so what I used to do is say, Lord, bless them, take care of them. But what I've learned is go back to the Scriptures because the Scriptures handle something. So turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And we got into this last week, but we're going to... We, we, only, we, we got sidetracked by something which I believe was helpful. And I'm not going to go through the background of this. If you want to go through the background of this, you need to get last week's CD. You can get it at the bookstore. You can, it, there's podcasts online. We're putting it in your hands as many ways we know how. The notes of these are posted online. I mean, it's all in your hands. You just got to take it and do it. I've had people come to me over the last year, a handful of people come to me and, and just grateful for how their lives have been changed by coming to this church. And I thank them. I said, but I understand this. Your life was not changed by walking in that door and sitting in a blue seat because I guarantee you there have been many more people that have come through that door, sat in a blue seat and left, and their lives weren't changed for the better. I said, what caused your life to be changed was you listened to the Word and then you did it. You listened to it and you... Be- you systematically and regularly applied it in your life. I've had testimonies from, from your, your, your Wake pro- program about the Renewing the Mind series that we did here a couple of years ago. People come to me out of that saying, it's changing my life. I said, no, it's changing your life is you've taken those principles and you're applying them in your life. The Word is what changes your life. It's not my teaching. It's not my great eloquence and it's certainly not my good looks. It's nothing about me. Understand this. I just got to get this straight. Whatever gifting God has given me to teach, first of all, it's not mine because I didn't create it. It's something He's entrusted to me for the purpose of making Him more real to you. So you may see the gift, but what's changing you is seeing Him. What changes you is to take this word that the gift of a teacher helps you to understand so that you can take it home and apply it in your life. The gift of preaching inspires you to do it, but the gift of teaching gives you understanding so you can take it home and apply it 
in your life. We need both of them in ministry, but it's the application of this word that will change your life. But it will change your life because it is ordained by God for that purpose. It's up to us what we do with it. If we leave it on a shelf and pull it off on Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights, if we come on Wednesday nights, if we just do that and we, you know, we come and we may even read it every day, but you don't take it and apply what you read, all you're doing is reading and getting more information. But it's when you apply it in your life, you're giving God and the power of God the opportunity to get in your life and begin to change you. And as you change, your life will change. Because God will work from the inside out. So it's in our hands. And so what, what we're endeavoring to do here is to get that into your hands in as many ways as possible, as inexpensively. In fact, everything that's online is free. Just to get it into your hands, you can't go to another ministry and find a CD for the price you buy them here. Why? We want to get it into your hands. But I've found that if there's a little cost to it, you'll treasure it a little more. So anyway, that's a sales pitch. Get it in your hands. Start applying it, listening to it. Apply it in your life. All right. So here's the issue. What do you do in a situation where you don't know what to pray? You don't know what the problem is. And we've talked about why that's an issue before. Because in many cases, what's going on in a situation, especially in a case where you're praying for a, a loved one's salvation or for their deliverance from something and they seem to be afflicted, they seem to be struggling with something, in, in some cases, it's demonic spirits that are dealing with it. Because we've talked about the fact that there's a spirit realm out there that affects things. And we saw that there were things where Jesus... People came to Jesus for healing. Sometimes he laid hands on them. Sometimes he spoke to it. Sometimes he told them to do something. And sometimes he cast a demon out. So the, the problem wasn't always, the issue wasn't always the same thing. But there were times when there was spiritual influences going on. Well, if that's what's going on, you don't know. I mean, you don't, we can't see them. We can't see demonic influences. We can't see situations like that. But the Spirit of God knows so God, see, this is what I want to say. You need to have confidence in God that, that God knows what He's doing. I mean, it may be so simple to say, yes, I know, but, but do you? Because if He knows what He's doing and He's trying to help us, then we need to do what He's saying because He knows what He's doing. He's smarter than we are. So God has designed, and this is what we were looking at last week, God has designed a perfect mechanism for communicating with Him. Perfect. Because God doesn't make things that aren't perfect. We can take what He makes and foul it up. But when God makes something, it works. So what do you do in a situation when you don't know what the issue is, and yet we're learning that we need to be specific because faith is specific? Well, that's what Romans 8 is in here for, verse 26. Last week we went through the background of this to kind of give us an understanding of what the, 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 the context that Paul is writing here. We're going to get into this a little more tonight. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit also helps. What we talked about last week is the other things He helps with. Also helps in our weaknesses. That's not sicknesses. That means an inability to produce results. And in our, this case, He's talking about prayer. The inability to get answers in prayer. The inability to be powerful in prayer. The inability to... The, whenever, when you're praying for a situation, just feel powerless and you're helpless... God not, does not intend that we're powerless and helpless, especially when it comes to prayer. 
And so, but he recognizes that we are in many cases because we're limited in our knowledge of what's going on. We don't know what to pray. And that's literally what this says. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weakness, our inability to do something. And this is what our weakness is, for we don't know what we should pray. Literally in the Greek it says we don't know the what to pray. We don't know what to pray about in a situation because we don't know what the problem is. But the Spirit helps us. We saw last week that that word help in Greek is a combination of three words together that literally mean to take hold together with you against that situation. And it's like if you're trying to move a car that's run out of gas and you just don't have the strength to get it going and somebody stops who's stronger than you and and takes hold of that back of that car together with you and then they add their strength to you to do what you don't have the strength to do. That's what this word means when it comes to prayer. He brings the power into prayer. But the power is to know what to pray. All right. For the Spirit likewise helps our weaknesses, and the weaknesses, we don't know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us. Now, He doesn't do this in place of us, because we've seen that the word help means to do it with us, not in place of us. But He makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And that's where we got on our sidetrack last week by talking about what these groanings are. And we went back and looked at the verses earlier and saw that the groanings have to do with Paul talking about the fact that our flesh is weak. And once we're saved, God's kingdom is inside of us, but we still deal with this flesh. I know I'm not the only one. We still deal with a flesh that wants to do what it wants to do that doesn't do what God's Word says we're supposed to do, that that wants to eat what we're not supposed to eat, that wants to sleep when we're supposed to get up and pray, that wants to do whatever it is it wants to do, and most of what it wants to do is bad for you. Whether it's good for you or bad for you, it's contrary to God's will. And the issue is the fact that you've got a flesh that wants to do what it wants to do immediately puts it contrary to the will of God because God wants us submitted to His will and the way he wants to do things. So the groaning is dealing with this flesh, is dealing with this world that is governed by the God of this world who is Satan. I mean, just, just the, I mean, I was in the dentist's office today getting my teeth cleaned, and this, the, the, the hygienist came out to pick me up, pick, pick me up to meet me. The, the, the screen is up there, and they've got the latest bombing in Gaza, and all, you know, and she just kind of turned her head away and just said, I can't look at all this stuff. She says, says, I'm becoming to believe there really is a hell on earth. I said, there is. I mean, the world around us, and and I'm getting to the point where I says, I don't want to be here. I have to be here because I'm here on an assignment, but I don't want to be here. I'm just getting tired of all this stuff. That's a groaning. That's a groaning. And then he says, all of creation groans because it wants to be freed of this curse that the world is under. Well, we're under the curse in the sense that we can't accurately discern what's needed in prayer. And so the Spirit of God makes intercession for us. And we saw that what that means is that we we saw... Well, let's go on and read the next verse because he tells us what he means. So he who searches the hearts, that's God. That's the one we're praying to. God the Father searches the hearts. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Remember, the Spirit's in you 
coming alongside of your prayers, taking the groanings, taking your inarticulate speech, taking our feeble efforts to try to to express to God this care, this concern. He's in us taking those feeble efforts that are in our hearts. This is why it has to be a heartfelt prayer and not a prayer out of your mind. Remember back in in James chapter 5, we mentioned it earlier, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, the fervent has to do with the heart. It's the emotion and the compassion of the heart about the situation. And when we pray about situations out of our mind, the Spirit of God can't engage with that because you can groan in your mind. There's There's no calling out to God, no crying out to God from your mind. That's a heart issue. That's why faith comes out of the heart. If you believe with your heart, not with your head, if you believe in your heart and don't doubt in your heart, faith is a heart issue. Spiritual matters come out of the heart. And the Spirit of God wants to take hold together with what's in your heart about that situation and express it. So prayers that come out of our mind are trying to pass information onto God and there's no power in that. And so the Spirit takes hold together with... So you've got God the Father who wants to hear our prayers. And He already knows what we're asking anyway. But He wants to hear it from us. He wants this connection with us. And we've got... We're down here. We don't know how to put this into words. We don't know how to express it. We don't even know what the issue is. But something in us is crying out to Him. And that's where the Spirit takes hold. Because it says, He who searches the... Who, he who searches the hearts, that's our hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So here you have a working together. This is God's powerful, accurate communication system. You're trying to say something to God. God wants to hear your words articulated and you can't do that. So the Spirit comes behind you and in spirit language begins to communicate to the Father a perfect communication of what's in your heart. Now we don't have time to go there tonight, but if you go over to 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you'll see the other side of that perfect communication. Those verses you hear me quote so often. For God, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is it into the hearts of men. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. Here's the opposite situation. You've got God now trying to communicate to us what's in His heart. Right? And the problem is, we don't get it. First of all, our concept of God is about that big. And He's enormous. He's in, there's no limit to Him, and there's no limit to what He wants to do. And if our concept of God is bigger, our concept of what He wants to do for us is too small. So God's got to get what He wants to show us through that little pinhole of what we're expecting. So how's He going to do that? Ah, God's smarter than we are. He's come up with a communication system that can get around that little pinhole of your brain and my brain. And we're going to look more at that tonight. And so God's here, and so He says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, it's not even entered into your heart. All that God has prepared into your heart. All that God has prepared for those who love you. But the Spirit's been given to us to reveal to us the deep things of God's heart. So when you were born again, 
Ezekiel says, God took out your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh. That's your spirit. That's now sensitive, tender, and alive unto God. But he doesn't stop there. Not only does he put in you a new spirit that's your spirit, but he takes his own spirit, that's who the Holy Spirit is, and he takes his own spirit and puts his own spirit in you. So here's what happens. When God wants to communicate to you something, his spirit in you knows perfectly what the Father wants to say. And his spirit and your spirit are fused together. So there's perfect communication between God's spirit and your spirit. The problem isn't that your spirit doesn't know God's will. The problem is the 18 inches between your spirit and this thing on the top of your shoulders. Because this thing filters and controls what's going to come up and be received. And we talked a lot about that in Renewing the Mind. But the process works the same way in reverse. So when you're trying to say something to God, your spirit communicates it to His Spirit, and He knows the perfect mind of His Spirit. That's what it means in this verse we use for so many other things. Look at the next verse that we quote for so many other things. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. Now, don't take it off your refrigerator. But He's talking here specifically about this communication system. God's causing this to work together for good. He's making it work. So God's provided a communication system that's perfect for communicating whatever this urge, whatever this in your heart is, to Him so that He can know it perfectly so that we can be precise. But here's the key. You've got to do that in faith. You've got to believe that's what's happening. It's not just because you're groaning. It's got to be in faith. All right, now let's look at a method that God has here. Let's go to Ephesians 6. This is where we started. We talked about different types of prayer. Ephesians 6. Bless you. Let's start at verse 10. We've done this before. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Verse 12 is talking about a battle that goes on. And this is a spiritual warfare. And he says, we don't wrestle. That involves, that implies some kind of battle, some kind of fight, some kind of struggle going on. And he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood but we're wrestling against spiritual forces, different levels of demonic forces in heavenly places. That's not heaven where God lives. That's the spiritual atmosphere around this earth. Now go over to verse 12, 18. Having gone through the armor to wear in this battle, he goes through how to fight this battle. Praying always with all prayer. We've seen before that means all manner of prayer and supplication in the Spirit being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So the prayer that he's talking about here that deals with this spiritual warfare is a praying in the Spirit. Why? Because it's a spiritual battle. 
you can't see where the shots are coming from. And you can't see who to aim your shots at. So we need, it's kind of like these, they got these, these night vision goggles now that they use, I guess, in battle, in nighttime battle, where you watch seen them on TV, where they pull these goggles down and now they can see who to shoot and where if the goggles are up and you don't, you're with your normal eyes, you can't see the enemy out there. Well, there's an unseen enemy out there that's not only just trying to affect you, but he's trying to affect that situation you're praying about. And since we can't see that situation and what it is, we, and we've been given authority, we don't know what to speak or what to do. So we need, that's a weakness, so we need help. So he's talking about here praying, exercising our authority, but it's got to be in the spirit, not out of our mind, because our mind can't understand exactly what the issue is. So this is the same thing that's talked about over in Romans. And here he says, praying at all times in the spirit. Now what does that mean? I've heard all kinds of teachings that mean just kind of, you know, you're just engaged in God. Or it can mean emotional. Well, let's look at something, because it can mean a number of different things, but let's look at one thing that the Bible is very clear that it does mean. Let's go over to Jude chapter 20. Go to Revelation and back up a couple of pages. Jude, not chapter 20, verse 20. There's only, there's only one chapter in Jude. But building, but beloved, to the church, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So here again, the Bible talks about a prayer that's praying in the Spirit. Now, I've heard this taught that that means in communion with the Spirit, and I believe that that's so. But go with me now, go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're just going to look at what the Bible says. Not going to get any discussions or disagreements with anybody. We're going to look at what the Bible says. Now this is in a section of Scripture where Paul is writing instructions to the church, actually corrections to the church at Corinth, about the gifts of the Spirit and the operating in those gifts of the Spirit, because they had it all fouled up. They saw it as a matter of spiritual pride, and, and it, was a, it was God's proof of how spiritual they were, because these gifts were flowing all over the place. They were not controlled. They were not purposeful. They were just demonstrating how spiritual they were. It was not accomplishing the will of God. So this chapter is the third of three chapters dealing with this problem. The first describes the gifts the second chapter, which is chapter 12. The next chapter, 13, which is called the love chapter, really its purpose isn't love, although that's what the theme of it is, is saying that these gifts and everything we do for God, if it's not motivated by love, it doesn't count as anything for God. So chapter 13 is dealing with the motive for flowing in the gifts, and in their case, it was way off track. Now chapter 14 is dealing with some specific gifts. One of them is the gift of speaking in tongues. And I want to go over that because that's clearly what he's talking about here. But in the process, he talks about praying in tongues. So let's go over to verse 14. Paul's talking in this context. You've got to understand, this is where some people have misunderstood. Paul's talking in this whole discussion, 12, 13, and 14, about operating in gifts of the Spirit in a church setting. Not talking about your private devotion life. 
He's talking about, not talking about your prayer life he's talk, or their prayer life. He's talking about operating in the gifts of the Spirit. And so the first part of this chapter, he's saying, here's the problem. Because if everybody just speaks in tongues, then nobody's going to have any understanding of what's being said. And especially if you've got an unbeliever come in, they're going to walk out of there with having no idea what happened at all. So he said, discipline, and that's contrary to what most people think the gifts of the spirits use, discipline those gifts so that they're purposeful so that accomplishing the purpose of God, not just showing off what you can do and feeling good about what you can do. So the first part of this chapter, Paul's talking about that if this is why it's better to, to, to either prophesy, which is speaking in English by the Spirit, or, or to speak in tongues and then interpret what was said in tongues in English, which is the equivalent of prophesying. But that doesn't mean that you can't pray in tongues without giving an interpretation at home. That doesn't mean that you can't pray in tongues. So he's not talking here about praying in tongues privately, but he gives an allusion to it. He gives a reference to it in this verse that gives us an insight. Verse 14. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit is praying. Now we're talking about this communication system going now in our case from us up to God, and so the initiator of that has to be my spirit. And my spirit has to be able to communicate with God's spirit. And since God's searching the mind of the spirit, then he'll understand what that prayer is. So it's got to be initiated by me, and it's not my mind. It's got to be initiated by my spirit. So he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit's praying. But my understanding, my mind, is unfruitful. Go over to verse 1. So... Paul's saying, and by the way, he goes on to say, I pray in tongues more than you all. I sing in tongues. But in a church service, I'd rather not do any of this so that the people may be blessed. Verse 1, chapter 14. Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He's talking about in a church service. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him, however the Spirit in him speaks mysteries. Mysteries to whom? Mysteries to my mind and mysteries to anybody else that hears it, but not mysteries to God. It's a communication directly from my Spirit to God's Spirit. And God understands exactly what the mind of the Spirit is. So it's maybe possible to pray in the Spirit without praying in tongues, but one clear way to do it is by praying in tongues. And here's the problem with that. My mind doesn't like that. My mind wants to understand everything I'm doing and be in charge of everything I'm doing. So if I'm doing something my mind doesn't understand, it'll give me fits. Now, it doesn't anymore because it's learned to just shut up because I'm going to do this anyway. But in the beginning, my mind used to freak out when I'd pray in tongues. It would argue with me. It would say, that's gibberish, that's baby talk. It would argue with me saying, nobody, you know, you're just making this stuff up. All this stuff because my mind wasn't getting attention. Your mind can be like a spoiled child until it's disciplined. And it likes to have attention. It likes to be listened to. 
I can't tell you what my mind goes through during praise and worship unless I shut it up. All kinds of things I never thought of during the day that need to be done here suddenly come to mind, just as it does when I'm in here praying. And I have to learn to not pay attention to those things. It's because my mind wants to be in running things. It wants to be in charge of things. And so Paul says here very clearly that when my spirit, when I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying and it's speaking in a heavenly language. It's speaking, it's speaking information to God's spirit that is mysteries to my mind, but not to God. Now, there's someone else that doesn't like this besides your mind, and that's the devil, because he doesn't know what you're praying either. Because he doesn't have, this is not a two-party line, and he's got the other extension. He can't pick up the other extension, so he doesn't know what's going on there. When you pray out loud, he knows what's going on, but when you're praying in tongues, he has no idea what you're doing, and that, bother, that drives him up a wall, so he's going to harass you. And tell you, look, you know, you're wasting your time. This is just stupid. Nobody's listening. You know, you sound fool. All the stuff I just went through, he'll go over that, over, over that, over that, over that. But Jude says if you do that, you'll build yourself up. You strengthen yourself. Paul talks to Timothy about stir up the gift that's in you. And he doesn't tell you how, but clearly this does stir up that gift that's in you. So one device that God has given... Now go with me to Acts chapter 2. One weapon, one, one uh, tool that God has given to us to help us in this inadequacy we have in prayer is, the, the Holy, is praying in the Holy Spirit, praying in tongues. Now, can you pray in the Holy Spirit without praying in tongues? Probably. But one scriptural way I know to do it is to pray in tongues, because Paul says when you pray in tongues, your spirit is praying. Okay, well... How do I know that's to God? Well, praying to whom? Because that's what prayer is, isn't it? It's talking to God. Okay, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until, until the, they were been baptized with the Holy Spirit. In uh, the end of Luke, which is the, also the author of Acts, Jesus, in his account, told them to wait until they're endued with power from on high. Now, they've been trained by him, they've been taught by him, and they've seen him raised from the dead. He's appeared to them alive from the dead over a period of about 40 to 50 days, and now he still says, you don't have enough. You need to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued, clothed with power from on high. And they were obedient to do that. And chapter 1 talks about them waiting and being together. Chapter 2 begins, Now when they're huddled together on the day of Pentecost, when their time had fully come, and they were all with one accord in one place, there suddenly came the sound from heaven of a rushing, rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It didn't just fill them, it filled the place. I'm waiting for the time it fills this place. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. I've seen pictures of like little big flames on the top of their heads. The Holy Ghost is not some little big flame. I mean, this is, the, this, is the, this is God's glory. Anyway, that's just a pet peeve of mine. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were, how many? The, the men were filled with the Holy Spirit. No, they were women. They all were filled with the Holy Spirit. There were women there too. 
just the, 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 the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit. No, they were, if you were there, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. So it wasn't based on how good you were, how holy you were. It was based on being at the right place. It was based on being obedient to what Jesus said to do. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they all began. They all began. They all began. Began implies something started that's not over yet. It's the beginning of something. It's the start of something. It's not the end of it. They all began to speak with other tongues. Other in the sense that they were foreign to them. Look at this. As the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speaking in their own language. That's supernatural. And they were all amazed and marveled and said to one, look, aren't those who speak in Galileans? You've got to understand, that was not a compliment in those days. To be called a Galilean meant you were a hick. You were a country boy. You weren't educated. You were not of the sophisticated schools of learning that most of the people in Jerusalem were from. These are Galileans. They, were, they, didn't, they didn't take, you know, a Rosetta Stone and learn all these languages. And, you know, they haven't gone to school and learned these languages. This has to be supernatural is what they're saying. They were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, aren't these all who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? The Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, they were dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians and Arabs, Arabs, We, listen to them, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Go back to verse 4. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And what are they speaking? Verse 11, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Here was the problem. You've got these uneducated Galileans that are all excited about the risen Christ and you've got these foreign visitors who don't know anything about what's going on and the Galileans don't know how to communicate with them. It's a communication problem. They don't know how to express the things that are going on, the things that are so full of what God has done, they don't know how to get it out, and they certainly don't know how to communicate it to these foreigners who don't speak their language. 
So what happens? When the Spirit shows up, when they're filled with the Spirit, they begin to speak out in other tongues. And what are they doing? They're declaring as the Spirit enables them, as He takes hold together with them and begins to give them utterance and expression, the perfect communication that God has, they begin to relax and allow the Spirit to speak through them. And they speak out these utterances. They don't know what they are. They don't make any sense to them. But that's not their business. That's God's business. They're doing this by faith. And when they do it by faith, God takes what they're saying by the Spirit and uses it to speak His message to these foreigners. God's perfect communication system. God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. We don't have time to get in there tonight. We may next time. Well, first of all, I want you to see here two basic things. They all spoke... And they spoke, and as they spoke, the Spirit gave them utterance. If we let read further on, 3,000 people get saved. Peter stands up and preaches a sermon. And one of the message parts of the sermon is he says, this gift that you see is for everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. It's part of the equipment that God gives us for prayer part of the equipment that God gives us for prayer. I don't have time to go there, but if you turn, if we went to Genesis chapter 11, it starts out by saying that the people were all together and they all spoke the same language. And they came together and decided, look, let's build something for ourselves to make a name for ourselves. So they decided to build a city and to build a tower that was going to get all the way up to heaven. And it says for two reasons they were going to do it. For their own glory and so that they wouldn't be spread out through all the land. But what was the commission God gave to, 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 to um, Adam? Be fruitful and multiply and to spread out. So they wanted to violate the purpose for which they were here. And they wanted to do it for their own glory. And God says, because they're all speaking the same thing, I've got to come down and confuse their language because if I don't, nothing that they purpose to do will be restrained for them. So it talks about the power of speaking the same thing. I was meditating on that one day and it dawned on me that on the day of Pentecost, that was reversed. Because on the day of Pentecost, what God did is they all, with different backgrounds, with different natural tongues and languages, they all began to speak a same language, which was the language of the Spirit. And He is known as the Spirit of unity. It's a unity not of our color, not of our of our looks, not of our language, but it's a unity of the Spirit that joins us together. Some people teach if you don't speak in tongues, you're not born again. That's just ridiculous. That's not what the Scriptures say. That's making a law out of something that God's given to us as a blessing and as a gift. A gift is something that's freely given and all we need to do is receive it in order to enjoy it. But it's not just for our enjoyment. It's not just to build ourselves up, but it's also a very important component 
of praying for situations where you don't know the what to pray. And here's where people get hung up. We focus on me. Can I do this? Can't I do this? Am I doing it? Am I not doing it? Acts chapter 2, they had no struggle with it because they didn't know what to expect. They just did what God said to do and the Spirit of God came upon them to do it. And we don't have time tonight to go into it, but I could take you to other examples in the book of Acts where the same thing happened. In one case, the Spirit of God just fell on people when they weren't expecting it and they began to speak in tongues. The focus has to be on God's giving the gift and the gift and not me. Can I do this? Can't I do it? It's not a badge of acceptance. It's not a measure of your spirituality. It has nothing to do with you or me. It's a gift from God, which is part of what He gave us when we were filled with the Holy Spirit.